following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. How many of you love going to the doctor? Yay! Oh, uh, you know, my blood pressure goes up. What you never want to have at the doctor, I mean, you always want to have, which I was just there this year at one point, and he said, do you want the good news or the very good news? And I'm thinking, perfect, that's what I want to hear at the doctor's office. But I've been there at one point when he said, we've got some serious things to talk about. And what you don't want to hear is, you know what, we have to act and we have to act now. In fact, your life is at risk. If we don't address this issue right now, then basically you're, you're going to pass away. We have to deal with this. And so he gets really focused, doesn't he? I mean, if you've had that kind of discussion or close to that kind of discussion or imagine that kind of discussion, it's all of a sudden there's a real focus on the part of the, uh, the doctor. He's, he's no longer the soft, nice, bedside manner kind of guy. He is very intense. He's very deliberate. And he's trying to let you know. Now, why is he so intense? Because he's trying to save your life from an enemy. Well, that's exactly what you have when you open your Bibles to the letter to the Galatians with the Apostle Paul. He is super intense. And it's not because he's trying to save your life, but because he's trying to save your eternity. And that's why he's so focused. That's why he says, if you take a look at Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, you'll see that he goes, I'm amazed. I'm amazed that you would turn away so quickly from the gospel. And so he's very, very focused. When it comes to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul does not hem and haw. He's not dinking around. He is bold. And he is not fretting over the repercussions of his boldness. The pure gospel had been preached to churches And they had understood that salvation was by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone, and now it's being distorted. And that's deadly. Why? Because of this. The gospel plus anything sends you to hell. The gospel plus anything. After Paul preached the clear message of grace through repentant faith, a group of Jewish teachers with connections to Jerusalem, they were called Judaizers. As soon as he left, he went through the region, established churches, he went back through the same places, but as soon as he gets back, they showed up and they insisted that Gentile Christians actually adopt all the ceremonial customs of the Law of Moses. They insisted that to become a Christian, you had to observe all the dietary laws And you had to be circumcised. In other words, you had to be a Jewish proselyte in order to become a Christian. And they're buying into it. And what they did was incredibly deceptive. They began to attack Paul's apostleship. Because if you attack the messenger, then you also demean the message, right? And so they're attacking Paul, and they're moving people and trying to move these Christians, almost Christians, people who are brand new in the faith and others who are struggling about what it means to be a Christian, and they're, these Judaizers are telling them, you need to be a Jew in order to become a Christian, and Paul's saying, no, salvation is by grace. You add nothing to that. You come to Christ by faith alone. Amen? 
So that's what he's saying, and he's very intense about it. More intense than your doctor would be. It's very much the same as the social justice movement that's going on today, that you have to be a certain way in order to become a Christian. And Paul here is writing these Galatian churches like a surgeon wanting to cut out the cancer of error. He wants to get it now before it kills them eternally. Now you know who the Apostle Paul was, right? You know that he is a church planting missionary. And in Acts 13, he's commissioned by the church of Antioch to go out on a missionary journey. And he goes to Galatia region and he shares the gospel of salvation. And there are many people who respond. And then when he comes back, he basically comes back through that same region. And what happened was, is these Judaizers immediately after he returned were making their way into the churches and they were beginning to kind of compromise their understanding of the true gospel. And again, Paul's amazement is, look, you got to deal with this. And so what Paul would do is he'd go on these missionary trips, he'd come back, and then he'd minister to these churches via letter. And the letters, many of them, not all of them, are found in your New Testament. That's where we got these letters of the 27 books of the New Testament was partly it was apostles who are writing churches and helping them and ministering to them in issues that they're facing. Well, this issue is super serious. So 20 years after the crucifixion of Christ, written around AD 48, this is the first letter that Paul ever wrote to a church, Galatians, the very first one. And Paul is young and he's full of juice and he's really exercised over the error, and the reason he's so exercised, again, if you add anything to the gospel, you lose it. It becomes now, instead of the path toward eternal life and heaven, it becomes a false path leading you to eternal torment and hell. So Galatians is written, and it's a letter that will change your life. It really is. In fact, how many of you have found yourself ever, and be honest, in your heart, you ever tried to earn God's favor through ministry, service, giving, and devotion? Anybody ever tried to do that as a Christian? Okay, I see some hands going up. I didn't want you to raise your hand, but that's fine. I'm glad you did. But we're all in it. There's not a heart in this room that hasn't tried to earn God's favor by trying to be good and forgetting who we are under His grace. In fact, sometimes some of you are hammered with the guilt of past sins. Well, you need Galatians. You need to be washed by Galatians. In fact, secondly, is your faith based on faith, or is your faith based on a prior experience, or is your faith actually based and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ in providing salvation for you? Because many of us have come from backgrounds where it was the experience or the emotion and not necessarily the reality of what Jesus has done for us. In fact, let me add to this, some believers actually view the gospel as introductory to the Christian life. That's what happened at the beginning, instead of essential to the daily life of a Christian. So if you're one of those, remember that Galatians was written to Christians. Christians. The intended audience of this letter are all professing believers because we need to live by the gospel and we need to live worthy of the gospel. And then fourthly, are you really clear about the true gospel? Are you bold to share it with others? And like Paul, are you ready to accurately correct errors about the gospel. Why? Because if you get the gospel wrong, then your eternity is hell. That's why it's so important. So this is why Paul did not give his customary greeting. A lot of commentators, why didn't he say, I'm thankful for you? What he says is, I'm amazed at you. I'm shocked by you. 
When you read this letter, you see his tone, you see his language. Normally, Paul's letters, he moves again to greeting, to thanksgiving. But these he's writing here, and he basically says, I'm amazed. And it's because they've moved so quickly away from the true gospel. The gospel of salvation in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. The one way you can deny the gospel or undermine it would be to undermine the messenger. So you distort the message by distorting the messenger. So you're going to find two themes in these first two chapters especially. They're going to undermine Paul's apostleship. They're going to say he's a lesser apostle. He's, a, he's not one of the twelve. He wasn't one of the twelve, right? So they're going, well, you're not as important as the twelve. You're, you're just kind of a lesser guy, you know, or you don't really count, or you're self-appointed, or they don't approve of you. The 12 in Jerusalem don't approve of you wandering out here doing all your Gentile stuff, or you're actually, are you ready for this? This is going to, you're going to see it right here in, Gen- in Galatians. They, they basically were saying, Paul, you're, you're cheesing the gospel. You're a man pleaser. You're making it easy by grace, free by grace. When our gospel is, man, you got to be Jewish, you got to keep the law, you got to be circumcised, etc. Our gospel's got substance. And basically, Paul says, no. Once you basically add anything to grace, you've destroyed grace. You've destroyed it. And he says, it's got to be salvation by grace. That's why chapters 1 and 2 is he gives an explanation, defending his apostleship. It's very personal. And you're going to love it. It's amazing. And then chapters 3 and 4 is an exposition. Proving the gospel is justification by faith alone. It's very doctrinal, very principle-driven. And then chapters 5 and 6 is the exhortation and gospel-driven practical living. He talks about living in the Spirit. He talks about the fruit of the Spirit and the fruit of the flesh. It's fantastic how he writes about what the gospel does in our lives. And that's where he's headed. But today, he dispenses with the normal greeting that he usually gives in his letters. And he says, basically, the purity of the gospel is worth fighting for and living for. So read aloud with me, if you would, from your outline so we can all read it out of the same version and a really good version. So there you go, verses 1 through 5. Let's read it together. Here we go. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins so that He might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of God and our Father into whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. Now what he says here is I've got the right to speak to you in the first five verses here. Two major messages come through. One, Paul is truly an apostle called by God. And two, he gives you the gospel message again. And he says, I can speak to you and correct you in this manner. Why? Take a look at point number one, because I have the authority of an apostle of Jesus Christ. I have the authority of an apostle of Jesus Christ. Look at verse one. He says, Paul, an apostle. That's more than just identifying himself. He's basically defending what the Judaizers are then slandering him about. Again, they're saying he's an imposter. He's not one of the twelve. They're trying to drive a wedge between him and the other apostles so that they'd be more ready to receive their Judaizer doctrine of having to be a Jewish proselyte to become a Christian. And so they're driving this wedge and undermining his apostleship. Now, in order to understand chapters 1 and 2, you have to understand 
what a New Testament apostle is. So you understand that, that there are criteria that even the New Testament tells us of what it means to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. The office of apostle is not merely someone who represents Jesus Christ. Please do not use that term. Write down the term proxy. Proxy. What a proxy means is that an apostle is actually one who speaks the words of Christ and performs the actions of Christ as if he were Christ. In other words, when he spoke or wrote inspired by God, God's word, it is the word of Christ, is it not? That's why it's in the Bible. That's why we have these letters. They're inspired by God. He was a proxy. John Stott uh, explains apostle this way, quote, it was not a general word, apostle, which could be applied to every Christian like the words believer or saint or brother. It was a special term, apostle, reserved for the twelve and for one or two others whom the risen Christ had personally appointed. And again, chapters 1 and 2, he's going to be defending his apostleship in a very unique way, defending their attacks against him. And what he does is he exalts the gospel, he exalts Christ, but he also tells them that he actually qualifies in the way that the New Testament expects him to. So what are those qualifications? Well, you probably know this. Apostles had to be eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. Was Paul an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ? Sure, remember the Damascus Road? Wham! He meets Jesus, okay? I mean, it was amazing. And he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus Christ? Secondly, apostles had to be confirmed by God-given miracles that were given through them, and that confirmed their office as they cast out demons and healed. And Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you, Corinthians, with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. And then thirdly, apostles had to be hand-selected for this unique office by the risen Lord Himself. Now, understand this. That Bible you have in your hand is because God used, specially used, Old Testament prophets and New Testament apostles and those they oversaw. Alright? That's how you got your New Testament. Interesting enough, what God intended was the Old Testament prophets would be those who would be writing and overseeing the writing of the Old Testament and the apostles to be the channels God used to write and oversee the writing of the New Testament. And the Apostle Paul fits into that category as well. So all those things, Paul fulfilled all the requirements. He saw the Lord. He performed the miracles. He was specially chosen to be the Apostle to the Gentiles. He's one who God used and inspired to write the Scripture And that made him an apostle of Jesus Christ. In the wider sense, there are other people who are called apostoloi. That's the term, and it means messenger. And there are other people like Barnabas, like Timothy, like Silas, who were called by this apostoloi. But that's different from the twelve and Paul. They only are described by apostles of Jesus Christ. So they uniquely had that nomenclature. But because Paul was not a part of the original 12, you find in Galatians and in Corinthians and some other letters, he has to defend his apostleship because people are constantly attacking him. 
and undermining his authority. Which is why Paul says, number two in your outline, I was selected by the risen Christ for this work. I was selected by the risen Christ. He affirms his apostleship by denying that his apostleship had any human source. There was no human source. Look what he says in verse 1, the second half. Not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through who? Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now these zealots are going, he's not really an apostle. He's not really commissioned by God. You don't need to follow him. You don't need to listen to him. They base their belittlement on the fact that Paul was not one of the twelve and the fact that he had been a savage persecutor of the church and that he held, as it were, no official appointment from the twelve who were in Jerusalem in the early church. And Paul's answer to that was not an argument. He basically just made a statement, a true statement. He owed his apostleship to no man but to a day on the Damascus Road when he met Jesus Christ face to face. You all know what happened on the Damascus Road, right? Remember? He's going to kill Christians, and God interrupts that trip, basically slams him to the ground, and he basically, at that moment, saves him and sends him to be apostle to the Gentiles. It's there in Acts 9, you will be an apostle to the Gentiles. He's going to be that guy. And because false teachers were accusing Paul of being a self-appointed apostle who had no authority, Paul emphatically says, I was not sent by man nor through the agency of man. There's no human involvement. You say, wait a minute, Chris. He was sent by the elders of Antioch to go start the first missionary journey. Yeah, but he was never given, laid hands on, sent, commissioned by anybody to be an apostle of Jesus Christ except for God alone. God alone commissioned him as an apostle. And he's wanted to make sure that you got that. That his commissioning to apostleship came from who? What? Verse 1 Through Jesus Christ. Through who? Jesus Christ. And God the Father who raised Him from the dead. Paul was affirmed by the triune God. That's why he uses the Son and the Father there. The triune God who proved salvation was accomplished by the resurrection. So what he's saying is, Paul's authority was not man-given. It was not self-given. It was God-given. And his right to instruct the Galatians was grounded in that divine prerogative. And Paul was vastly superior in his commissioning than the Judaizers. You know what the Judaizers said? They go, hey, I know Peter. I shook Peter's hand. Uh, and James, James, you know James over there, uh, the half-brother of the Lord in Jerusalem? He, 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 he likes our Jewishness. So we're going, hey, you know, you need to listen to us. And Paul's saying, listen, I got nothing from those guys. Everything I received was directly from Jesus Christ. Right? That's my authority. My authority did not come from men. It came from Jesus Christ alone. And Paul takes it a step further by reminding these corrupted Christians, number three in your outline, I'm not alone in this. I labor with a team of chosen servants. Now, what does he mean by chosen servants? When you study the Bible, you've got to say, well, what does he mean? What does he, you know, don't guess at it. How is it used elsewhere in the New Testament? Well, when you look up chosen servants or all the brethren who are with me, Basically, what you find is that it's also used in Philippians 4.21. And it means all the brethren. And you say, well, what does that mean? But it's in distinction in Philippians 4 from the saints who are referred to in verse 22. So all the brethren in Philippians 4 is distinct from the rest of the saints. So what we understand, the clue that we might gain from this, is that is who they are in Galatians here when he says all the brethren... And basically what he's talking about is he traveled with fellow ministers. Paul traveled with servants, apostolic assistants, disciples, teachers, evangelists, 
Christian leaders, and some of them, are you ready for this? They were Gentiles, but they were also really super solid Jews that everybody knew. Barnabas. Everybody knew Barnabas. Everybody loved Barnabas in the early church. Everywhere. He was the son of encouragement. And he traveled with him. And what Paul is saying here, unique to Galatians, the helpers, the brethren, these leaders, didn't send greetings to the churches in Galatia when most of the letters do. But they're listed here to give credibility, believability, integrity to Paul's teaching. Basically, Paul is saying, I am not alone in my beliefs. There are many other godly leaders, Jew and Gentile, who also believe the truth of the gospel of grace alone and reject the lies of the Judaizers. There are other people here. This is not just me. My commissioning straight from God, but there are other people who, in the very same way, believe what I believe. And lest you forget, number four in your outline, I was used of God to establish your churches. Now, I get that from the phrase, verse 2, to the churches of Galatia. Galatians is a circular letter. What that means, it went to many churches in a giant province or region called Galatia. Uh, More than one church and more than one Christian were tempted to turn away from the true gospel of grace and embrace a works righteousness. Everybody understand works righteousness, right? Everybody understands that works righteousness means that I'm trying to work my way to heaven. I'm trying to be good enough, you know, light enough candles, say enough prayers, live nice enough that somehow God would accept me. But we teach, and the New Testament teaches, and Paul teaches, that by grace you're receiving the righteousness of Christ. It's God who gives you His righteousness and covers you with His righteousness, not that you earn your righteous way before God. Does that make sense? You're dressed in His righteousness to make you able to stand in His presence. And so he's talking about this, and he's trying to help them to understand and remind them that he's the one who actually God used to bring them the gospel of grace. The gospel of that you're saved by grace alone through faith alone. Paul planted these churches. He shared the gospel, he gathered them into churches, and basically he's the one that established them, and he established them under a gospel which was justification by grace alone. To them. On his first missionary journey, described in Acts 13 and 14, which is right before Galatians is written, Paul proclaimed a gospel to the region of Galatia, establishing those churches in what cities? In Cyprus, Perga, Antioch, Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, and then on his return trip, he visited those in reverse order, and he added Italia, and then also home at Antioch, and he did all of that in that first missionary journey, and immediately, as soon as he gets home, these Judaizers swept into those churches and began to press them with adding works, adding the law, adding ceremony, adding circumcision to the gospel itself. Now, understand, what is Paul saying here when he's saying to the churches of Galatia? You, you may not express or correct everybody who says something in error to you. Like you're, you meet somebody new at the workplace and they, they pop off some weird Christian doctrine. You might not immediately go, you're all wet, you know, and let me correct you. You might wait to try to understand where they're coming from, build a relationship with them so you can kind of correct them. But isn't it true that when they're family when they're a brother or sister in your family, when they're a father or a mother or a son or a daughter, when, when they pop off with an error, you correct them right away, right? Why? Because they're family. And Paul is saying, look, 
I'm your spiritual dad. You churches, I established you. I basically brought you the gospel, and therefore, I'm telling you, this is incorrect. Now, there is an interesting, also, a big debate that I'm going to spend very little time on. Uh, who is Paul speaking to when he writes the Galatians? There are some people who think that this letter was written later in the New Testament era. I don't. As Paul is addressing the northern Galatians made up of the Gauls, who were called the Galatians. Are you getting it? That's where it came from. It's the, the people of Gaul, the Galatians. And this letter was written, okay, some people believe later, to the Galatians. Others believe that this written was this letter was written earlier, I do, and Paul is speaking to southern Galatia, made up of the churches that he had just visited on his first missionary journey. That's why he's amazed that they would turn from the gospel so quickly. And there's much written on this, but it seems best that Paul's use of Galatia is not referring to the Galatians, the people, but to the region where he established all those churches on his first missionary journey. So, why is Paul so upset? You need to ask that. Why is he so burdened? Why does this epistle start right off the gang, you know, with I'm amazed? Number five in your outline, because I'm fighting for the truth of the gospel of grace. I'm fighting for the truth of the gospel of grace. The Judaizers had bewitched the Galatians. They're telling them Paul's not an apostle, that the gospel is, is cheesy. Um, we'll get more in, about this in weeks to come. What do I mean by cheesy? Easy. You've heard of the easy gospel? The Judaizers accusing Paul of teaching an easy gospel is because he wants to be a man pleaser. He wants people to accept the gospel because it costs you nothing. It's free. The Judaizers are going, man, the gospel we teach you is, man, you've got to keep the law, you've got to do the dietary thing, you've got to be circumcised. And they're thinking, that's a beefy gospel. But this cheesy freeze gospel, he's just trying to make friends with people. He's just trying to make it easy. So they're belittling him on every front. They're undermining him. Understand, they're saying stuff like, yeah, we know James. Yeah, we're, we're, we're close to Peter. They're lying. But basically, beginning the letter, Paul is very direct, and he immediately defends his apostleship, and number two, he gives them the gospel. What does he do? Look at verse three through five. He gives them the gospel. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. Now, Paul's gospel centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. The good news of salvation is not about an experience you had. It's about Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, him being God who has provided salvation for us. It is a gospel of grace that brings peace. And that's why he starts with grace and peace. In fact, the Judaizers are trying to bring them under the slavery of bondage again. He'll talk about that in Galatians chapter 2, verse 4. But only Christians are under the freedom of grace. The freedom. Listen, sometimes you feel like you've got to earn it. You know, you've got to work for it. But any moment in your life, any moment, you can calm your heart before the Lord Jesus Christ and remember that all of your sins of the past, all of your sins today, and all of your sins in the future were laid on Jesus Christ and they have been paid for. Amen? At any moment you can remember, and that is the gospel of grace. The gospel where God saved you, not on the basis of what you did, but on the basis of what He did. Are you tracking with me? 
That's very important you understand that because that's what's at stake here. And understand, you want to celebrate that. Grace and peace. You know what grace is. God, riches at Christ's expense. It is God's holy, unconditional goodwill towards you. Grace is God's unmerited favor that reaches out towards us in all our sin and need. Gives us what we don't deserve. His unconditional, unearned salvation. Grace is God's love in action. Grace planned our salvation from before the foundation of the world. It was grace that the Judaizers so mercilessly attacked. I'm thinking in my mind, if I saw the original document that Paul wrote, he cast grace and underlined it okay because they're going after it and then he wants you to have peace and Paul's a Jew and so shalom would definitely come to mind and shalom is more than the absence of trouble you know what peace means for your life and my life everything which is your highest good everything which will make your mind pure and undistracted and at peace everything that basically will get your will to be resolute and everything that will get your heart to be glad is peace. Peace is that sense of love and care of God that you desperately need, that I desperately need. And peace is so powerful that even if you are being persecuted or even tortured, your mind can be at peace. You look at some of the saints who died for their faith and you go, how did they have this peace? It was because God had given them that peace and it came in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they were confident even in their own death. Understand, God's grace and peace are yours in genuine salvation. So what is the gospel? Write it down. God saves sinners. God saves sinners. It is a coming from a divinely appointed apostle, the apostle Paul. He's reminded the Galatian Christians he's already taught them he already gave them God's divine message, the good news, that God saves sinners. You all know the difference. One more time. It is God who did the work, not us being good enough to somehow earn our way, but God did it because He knew we'd never make it. We'd always be condemned, and God had to accomplish it for us on our behalf. There's only one way that you can ever be rescued from God's wrath for sin in your life. And by the way, look at the people around you right now. Go ahead, look at them. Go ahead, take a glance. They look pretty nice, right? On the outside, inside they are vile. Those people you looked at are horrific sinners deserving of a condemnation in hell forever. They really are. I am too. But what's amazing is that God gives us His grace and forgiveness and salvation in spite of us. In spite of us. That's the message of the gospel. And so he gives you a quick outline of it. So who are we? In your outline there, who are we? We are helpless and we're lost. That's what the word rescue implies in verse 4. Every other religious leader on the planet is trying to teach you something. And our Lord Jesus Christ is the greatest teacher that ever lived on this planet. But that's not what Paul highlights here. He doesn't highlight the teaching of Christ to bring you to salvation. He emphasizes that God rescued you. He emphasizes that it is way bigger than us following Christ. I mean, even the guy on the street thinks that we're followers of Christ, we're followers of his teaching, that's true, but it's bigger than that. After all, you don't rescue people unless they're lost and desperately in need in a helpless condition. And Paul says, look at what he says in verse 4, so that he might rescue you. Rescue you. Right? Alright, so there's some of you in the congregation here and I'm not going to give away any secrets, but my friend Josh Gumbert is here today, and, and Josh, you know, he lives in Hawaii, but he hasn't told anybody, and I'm telling you right now, Josh can't swim. 
Okay, he lives on an island surrounded by water, but he can't swim. He's just never done it, he's just never had concern, no, no time for it. And understand, I'm on a cruise ship, and Josh is goofing out like he always does, just having a great time, and he just fell over the railing into the water, and he's treading water, and he's spitting up water, and he needs help right now. Are you with me? You got the scene fixed in your head? What does he need? What does he need? Right here, okay? He needs swimming lessons, correct? Right? So what I do on the cruise ship is I see him down here, and he's pretty much 30 seconds away from, you know, basically drowning, and I toss him my swimming lessons manual. <laughs> right? I go, Josh, you know, just kind of thumb through that really quick, and you're going to be okay. Right? Isn't that what he needs? No. What he needs is what? Rescue. He needs a life preserver. He needs somebody to step in and pull him out of the water. That's what he needs. That's what Jesus Christ did for you. He didn't stand up there and go, here, let me give you the manual. All right? He said, I'm going to rescue you, and then I'm going to help you understand how to swim. He's going he's to show you afterwards, but he's going to rescue you because you can't get it. It's, you're in a desperate situation, and you need to be rescued. Jesus' death was a rescue operation. That word rescue means rescue from danger. Stephen used it when he's preaching to the Sanhedrin about to be stoned, and he said, God rescued Israel out of danger. Uh, Peter used it when he talked about he was released from prison. He was about to be killed and beheaded by Herod, and Herod's trying to score points with the Jews, and, and Peter was rescued by an angel, and he said the word rescue from danger. And that's what it is, a rescue operation. The only possible means of saving you and I is from this doomed world and from our own sin and from eternal death is providing salvation by rescue. By rescue. Paul adds that you and I are rescued from this present evil age. And that term age is not talking about time, but a, a system under satanic world domination. Yes, God is sovereign, but this world is under satanic influence. Can you feel it, friends? Are you seeing it? And it's only going to get worse. It's not going to get better unless God decides to delay and be merciful again. But otherwise, we're going all the way. And this evil dominates this planet. And although Christians are not removed from the earth until they die or are raptured, believers are rescued out of this present evil age the moment they receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The moment. You still live in the world, but you are now what? Of the world. A faithful Christian life is a heavenly life lived on earth. We live different because we've been regenerated because we are different. Well, what did Jesus do? What Jesus did? Well, how did Jesus rescue us? Look at verse 4. Look at that phrase. He gave himself for our sins. Uh, circle that word for. Because he's telling us that his sacrifice was as a substitutionary nature. The word for there means on behalf of or in place of or instead of, and substitution is why the gospel of Jesus Christ is so revolutionary. It is so shocking. Christ's death was not merely a general sacrifice giving us a second chance at life or another opportunity to get life right. It's not that. The heart of the gospel is Christ's willing sacrifice of Himself for our sins. Salvation is never earned by your effort you can never eliminate sin from your life or judgment for sin, but salvation comes when you trust in God's promise to forgive sin through the work and person of Jesus Christ as your substitute. He took the punishment you deserved. 
If you're a little kid, Jesus took your spanking. He took it for you. You deserved it. He took it. All of us deserve that eternal torment in hell. But He took it for us on the cross. He was our substitute. That's what 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says. He bore Himself our sins. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might what die to sin and live to righteousness. Christ did all we needed to do that could never do. And could never do. In fact, Christ's death, if He really paid for our sins, if He really was our substitute, then you can never be condemned. Can you not? Because the price has been paid. The price has been paid. God, would, if He basically had to condemn you again, He'd be getting two payments for the same sin, His and ours, and that's unjust. Jesus did all we should have done in our place. So when He becomes our Savior, we are absolutely free from the penalty of sin and the condemnation from sin. Why did God do it? Are you ready? Write it down. Because He willed to. Because He willed to. He chose to. Look at verse 4. According to the will of God our Father. According to the will of our God and Father. We didn't ask for rescue, but God in His grace planned what we didn't even realize we needed. And in verse 6 says, Christ by His grace came to achieve the rescue we could never have achieved ourselves. The Lord's death was the Father's will for you. Now here's an unanswered prayer. When Jesus was in the garden... And he said, could you, Father, remove this cup from me? Talking about the wrath of God about to come upon him. And you know what the Father said? No. No. That wrath had to pour on Christ. Otherwise, you and I and any other genuine believer could never be saved. It had to pour out on him. He had to die. The Father sent the Son to die the Son willingly laid down His life for you. There's no indication of any other motivation in this context for Christ's mission except the will of God. Nothing in us merits salvation. Salvation is sheer grace. He chose you by grace. He died by grace. He rose from the dead by grace. And He called you because God willed. Period. God gave you grace, peace, forgiveness, a new heart, and gave it to you free because He willed to do so. That puts you in a very humble spot, doesn't it? You didn't do anything. God did it. This is why the only one who gets the glory, look at verse 5, who gets the glory? Anyone answer? Come on, answer. Who gets it? Only God, and how long does God get it for? Forever. He, he's the only one who gets the glory, and all of the glory, because it was all Him. If we had rescued ourselves. If God had somehow seen something deserving of rescue in us, or useful for His plan in us, or even if we had simply called out for rescue based on our own understanding or reasoning, then we could pat ourselves on the back and go, boy, for, for the part we played in our own salvation, we contributed God, but no. The biblical gospel, Paul's gospel, the one he's trying to rescue out of the Judaizers' hands here is very clear. Salvation from first to last is God's doing. It is His calling, His plan, His action, His works. And so, it is God alone, verse 5, who deserves all the glory for all time forevermore. This is the humbling truth at the heart of Christianity. You know, that's why He later on reminds us in Galatians chapter 6, verse 3, you, He says, are you ready? 
This is one of my life verses, so I'm sharing it with you. You are nothing. I mean, honestly, friends, I'm nothing. Everything that anything that is anything that's worthy of good or grace in my life is because of Jesus Christ. I got nothing to offer you. Nothing. And that's the place of Christianity. It's not about us. It's about who? Jesus Christ. It's about him and what he's done. Our hearts love to manufacture, okay, glory for ourselves. Our hearts love to be our own savior. We love it. So we find messages. Man, the Judaizers coming in there go, man, if you just, just keep the dietary law, just do the ceremonies, and our hearts are going, yeah, if I do that, I'll really be pleasing to God, and I'll really be a solid Christian. And Paul says, no, it is by grace. Even in the world, they're going, man, just clean up your act, and boy, you can enjoy the good life, and even in the secular world. But the gospel turns all of that upside down. The gospel says you are in such a hopeless position that you need a rescue that has nothing to do with you at all. Then the gospel declares God and Jesus provides a rescue which gives you far more than any false salvation your heart may love to chase. Paul's reminding us in the gospel we are both brought lower and higher than we can imagine. I mean, you're nothing, but now you're a child of the king, right? Both of those are true. You're nothing in yourself, but now we get the riches of Jesus Christ forever. Come on! You should be smiling right now. Maybe doing a happy dance. Understand, the glory for that action all goes to who? God. God is the author of salvation. God saves sinners. God is the one who gets the glory. And God, somehow, in His mercy and grace, and I have no reason, I have nothing to offer Him, but somehow He chose me, and somehow he chose most of you. And he did so because he willed to do so. Aren't you thankful for that God? When we were helpless and hopeless and could do nothing to save ourselves, but he saved us. Wow, what a God. So take this home with me with two important questions, okay? So track with me, stay with me. We're almost wrapping it up. And these are really important questions. Are you a recovering Pharisee? You're already insulted by that question, I know. The Galatians... Is written for you. I think that every Christian in this room is a recovering Pharisee. I do. We're more prone to try, even though we've been saved by grace, no works on our own, are we not prone to work for our salvation? Can I hear a yes or no? Yes, we are. So we're recovering Pharisees. We're trying to do it ourselves. And amazingly, God is saying, no, don't. Pharisees were very religious they were regular in their worship, orthodox in their theology, moral in their conduct, and yet something was missing. In their mind was God, in their actions was God, but not in their heart. And so their religion was like hypocrisy. And in their hypocrisy, they thought that what God would do for them, get this, depended on what they did for God. Listen, anytime you think that, what God would do for them depended on what they did for God. Anytime you're trying to make a barter with God, try to bribe God, try to live up, try to be a better, you're doing that in your own strength. And understand, you're already forgiven past, present, and future. You're already under His grace. So deal with Him in a love relationship and not barter with Him. Are you ready? Be a recovering Pharisee. 
What they fail to understand is that God's grace cannot be earned. It only comes free. The moment you taint it with anything, it's no longer grace. There's a way out of Phariseeism. Are you ready? It's the gospel. It's the good news that Jesus Christ has already done everything necessary for our salvation. If we trust Him, He will make us right with God by giving us the free gift of grace. He'll do so. And when we reject our own righteousness, then we can be covered with His righteousness. Right? If we think that we're all that, we can't be covered in His righteousness. But most former Pharisees have a problem. It's hard for us to leave our legalism behind. And even though initially we receive the grace of God for free, we're trying to somehow put a surcharge to it. Have you done that? Come on, be honest. You believe that God loves you, but secretly you suspect that His love is conditional, that it depends on how you're doing in the Christian life. Anybody there with me? Come on, a little nod would help me. They end up with a performance-based Christianity that denies the grace of God. Theologically, what they want is to base their justification on their sanctification. This means that most former Pharisees, most Christians, are still in recovery. There is still something of the old legalist in us, and although we have been saved by grace, we don't always know how to live by grace. Anybody with me? The gospel is something that we received sometime in the past, but something now that we don't live or breathe every single day, though we should. You say, Chris, then... How do I get free from this trap? Are you ready? Be here for Galatians. For the next 30 weeks, legalistically, be here so you can be freed of your legalism. <laughs> Let Galatians wash over you. Let it be where it changes the way you think. It oozes out of your pores. We will be a freer people. We will be a holier people. We will be a people more pleasing to God when we stop trying to earn our salvation. And that's what Galatians is all about. Be here and become a Christian who's saved by grace, lives by grace, obeys by grace, serves by grace, worships our Lord Jesus Christ by what? Grace. Number two, letter B. Do you have the true Christ? Don't put your stuff away. Do you have... The true Christ. The cults have a Christ, but he's not our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses have a Christ, but he's not God the Son. He didn't raise from the dead because according to them, his body dissolved into gas in the tomb. Their Christ came back in 1914. He is not our Lord Jesus Christ. Mormons have a Christ. Their Christ is a polygamist, secretly married to Mar Mary and Martha at the wedding of Cana. He is not our Lord Jesus Christ. The Seventh-day Adventists have a Christ, but he did not bear our sins on his body on the cross on a tree. According to them, Satan was the scapegoat, and our sins were put on him. Their Christ is not our Lord Jesus Christ. The Catholics have a Christ. The priest literally makes him by pronouncing five Latin words over a wafer of bread in the Mass. That is not our Lord Jesus Christ. The liberals have a Christ, but he was not virgin-born. His miracles were sleights of hand. His life was only a good example. His death was an unfortunate martyrdom. And his resurrection is only a myth, according to them. He is not, and they are not, and they are not honoring our Lord Jesus Christ. 
The Judaizers had a Christ, but their Christ was a Christ where you'd hang the law on the shoulder of someone, you'd hang ceremony on them, you'd had to be Jewish in every possible way. The law of Moses is weighing you down, even though they're believing so-called and what Christ has accomplished, they've added all this other stuff that is no longer grace anymore, and theirs is not the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ is eternal. He's uncreated, self-existing, the Son of the living God. Our Lord Jesus Christ created heaven and created earth and created you. Our Lord Jesus Christ was virgin born. When He stepped out onto this planet uh, from eternity, He became a man among men. And our Lord Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. He raised the dead. He cleansed the leper. He healed the sick. He fed the hungry multitudes. He changed water into wine. He walked on the water. He stilled the storm. Our Lord Jesus Christ died an atoning death as a sacrifice for sin. The just for the unjust though He might bring us to God. Our Lord Jesus Christ was buried and remained in the tomb three days and three nights. Our Lord Jesus Christ was raised bodily from the dead and proved Himself alive by many infallible proofs. Our Lord Jesus Christ ascended bodily into heaven and now sits enthroned to the right hand of God exercising ministry of our great high priest and an advocate with the Father. Our Lord Jesus Christ sent the Holy Spirit to make us one, the church of Jesus Christ, one with Himself. Our Lord Jesus Christ is coming again to receive His bride, to rule this world, to establish a literal kingdom of God on earth. And our Lord Jesus Christ calls you right now to believe in Him. Are you getting it? He is God. The only God. And He's the only one that you will be able to have salvation from. Would you ask Him, open up your heart. Ask the Lord Jesus Christ to give you the faith to believe, the repentance to turn from your sin, exchange all that you are for all that He is, die to yourself, forget yourself, and just focus on Him, surrender to Him, and you will have now and forever our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would use your word to work in our midst in a great way. You draw some to yourself, cause the rest of us to live under your grace, to relish your grace, to realize we're forgiven and cleansed and washed, to realize what it means that it's not a license for us to sin, but a license for us to obey and to please you and to know joy and relationship with you that we never could have except that you have rescued us. Thank you for that rescue. Thank you for the grace that we enjoy and the mercy and the love because of all of your sacrifice. We give you all the praise, all the glory. It is all about you and we honor you as our Lord and King and we praise you in the name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.